Well, thankfully, the service so far in our scripture reading and our prayer and our songs have already preached a better sermon than we'll get right now. Um, pray with me, church. Father, you are a good God. You are a steady God. You are a faithful God. <clears throat> you are a God that we can rely on wholeheartedly. And we thank you for being our rock, for being our anchor, <clears throat> for being our life. We thank you for sending your son so that you may secure us in those promises that you have given. We thank you that you sent your son to make sure that all promises you've made will indeed come to fruition so that we may be assured and rely on him and them for the things you have promised to give us. <clears throat> we do not deserve these things. You have no obligation to give them to us other than your self-obligation you've given yourself. So we thank you that you are such a good God to do this to send your son. We thank you, Spirit, for applying the truths of these promises to us and for applying what the son has done to us. We thank you that all your promises are yes and amen in you. Be with us this morning as we look into your word and one final promise. I pray that you Use this series to grow us, to sustain us, to rely and cling to you and to your promises so that we may boldly, in hope, go throughout our lives in bold proclamation of your gospel and of your word and our reliance on you. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So as Pastor Landon said earlier, um, I am one of the adult Sunday school teachers. I lead a class along with Jonathan Hubbard. And so in Sunday school class is a place that I'm a lot more comfortable than doing something like a sermon. This is probably one of the more nerve-wracking things you could possibly do. And so sometimes it's good to relieve tension by having maybe like an icebreaker. So that could be, I thought I would share, my, share something about myself. Um, to kind of break the ice and let things go. So what's something I could share with you is one thing I could tell you about myself is that I, I'm a liar. Oh, some heads raised up there. Yeah, that shouldn't surprise you, though, because I, I'd wager, and I think I would probably win the wager, that probably all of us in this room are liars as well. Right? And you might be saying, well, okay, wait a minute. I've become a Christian now, and I haven't told a lie in quite some time. Uh, okay, let's, let's say, let's go with that. But you, I, I highly doubt you could go to a uh, death row inmate and ask him how he feels about having become a murderer. And he, and he replies, I'm not a murderer. I haven't killed anybody in at least five years. That wouldn't make sense to us. He's done what he's done. And so we have all told lies, and so that makes us a liar. You know, so 
I think society has come to a point where we, we recognize this. This is something intrinsically we understand. And so we've built systems in society, haven't we? We put things in place to help us make sure, help us be secured and assured that any kind of relationship I have with someone, that I can make sure that the promises they make to us will come to fruition, right? So we have things like um, collateral, we have down payments, we have security deposits, we have contracts, we have O's that we take. And so it's interesting that one of the things that Jesus says about how God's people should handle O's, he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember what he actually says? He says, do not take an oath at all. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Now, my job this morning isn't to unpack that verse. Rather, what I want us to do is remember that the proper way to understand uh, biblical teaching is to allow the whole counsel of God to speak to it. So I mention this principle because the rest of Scripture shows that God actually makes O's himself. In fact, our passage today that we're going to be over talks about God making an oath. So it seems odd that God who has no lie in him, would choose to take an oath. So kind of what I'm getting at is, oaths aren't necessarily bad for us to take. Rather, Jesus was talking about in Sermon on the Mount that we are to be people who are characterized like God, in which oaths are unnecessary. Our word should be taken as is. On the other hand, though, it is still curious that God... the one being who has never given any reason for any of us to not trust him would so graciously condescend to us and swear an oath. Because right? an oath, what is an oath for? It guarantees the cure of something because we don't know if the other person that's giving us that oath is trustworthy or not. Or if in their finitude, they might not be able to accomplish that thing. But God graciously condescends and swears an oath. And so this is what God does in this passage today, this morning. He swears an oath. And he swears not just any oath. He swears the most solemn, binding oath one can swear. So before I go on, let's, let's see this for ourselves in our passage today. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to pick up in verse 13. So in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, he, the writer of Hebrews says this. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtain the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, 
we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Mechizeldeg. First, I want to remind us some of the promises that we can stand on that we've seen in this series. It's just some of the promises. We obviously didn't cover every promise that God has given us in this series, and I'm not going to cover every promise that we talked about this series either, but I want to remind us what we looked at this summer. Jesus, our Savior, will never lose those who are His. God, our Creator, will make all things new, removing the curse and setting everything right. He made a promise that our, ultimate, our omnipotent God will help and strengthen us, upholding us with his righteous right hand. We have the promise that God, the faithful one, will lead us back from our suffering and hardships into praising him again. We have the promise God that God who provides is in control and wastes nothing. We have the promise that our kind and loving shepherd provides, protects, and pursues us. We have the promise that Jesus, our humble servant king, prepares a place for us and we return to take us to himself. So I hope that this series, and I pray that this series has blessed us and that God will and is, will continue to grow us in faithfulness and confidence in our God and his promises. Today, what I want to do is show how this passage here in Hebrews displays Three things for us that God gives to encourage us to stand with hope on his promises. So these three gifts that God will grow are confidence in his great promises. So here's number one. God gives the ultimate guarantee. Now, to help us see this point, I want to do something that often um, frustrates my wife. So often she'll ask me some question, like a question in theology, what have you, and all she wants is a simple answer. But that's not what I do. I give her like an hour-long lecture on the background and all the working parts that go into answering one simple question, when all she wanted to know is, yes, I believe this, or no, I don't believe this. So I'm going to do a little bit of that because I can But I think it's going to help us see the point. Hopefully it will come to fruition here. So I want to speak about something that has more and more become, often rightly at times, criticized. And that is something known as exemplary exegesis. Okay, don't get chipped on this fancy word. So exegesis, all that means is a way of interpretation. So just think interpretation. But what's the exemplary part? Exemplary exegesis is when we take a chosen passage and focus on the characters of, those pa- of that passage in order to see how they are and become examples for us to follow. So then why is this exemplary exegesis so criticized? Well, what happens is, often, that when we approach a text with this kind of interpretation method, we often tend to abuse it. So usually the center of the passage 
the main thrust of the passage is not really so much an example of some man or woman in Scripture in the biblical stories whom we are to imitate. Really, the real point of the story is often missed. So we tend to, using this type of exegesis, turn the text into something more man-centered rather than God-centered. We insert ourselves into the story, and suddenly it's we who are like, say, David. We become David, and we see ourselves in David standing before our Goliaths. And if we are enough like David, enough like the man after God's own heart, we too can slay our giants and move on to greatness. But do you see, you see, don't you, that the point is missed if we take this too far? Because in that story, it is God who is the true slayer of the giant. And it's really more like we are cowering behind the, uh, the lines of Israel, waiting for someone else to take care of something we don't want to do. However, is the criticism against this exemplary exegesis fully warranted? Is it always wrong to do this type of biblical interpretation? Well, not really. I don't think it is, always. In fact, the passage we just read, this chapter of Hebrews, as well as other parts of Hebrews, actually does this type of interpretation. And we can see more clearly this type of interpretation if we just actually go back a couple of verses in chapter 6. So let's look at those verses now, two, two verses back. So we read 13, so go back to 11. You see there, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And that prompts the writer of Hebrews to bust into an example of Abraham. So we don't want to overreact to this type of interpretation and say never do it. Sometimes it is okay to do. However, right, so this is where my wife would get frustrated with me and want me to answer the question. However, if we were to approach this text in a purely exemplary way and only focus on how we are to imitate Abraham, what would happen? What would it look like? How might we interpret it? Well, let's try it real quick. So look at verse 15 again. It says, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So with this exemplary approach, this example approach, how might we interpret this? We would interpret this that Abraham receives the fruit of the promise. Why? Because he waited patiently. So you see, we, in doing this, we place the emphasis on Who? on Abraham and the things that he did, and because he did what he did, he obtained the promise. So we place the emphasis on man, what Abraham has done, and what he did was wait patiently. Now again, this isn't necessarily bad. It isn't all bad. It's certainly part of the text. And Abraham did wait patiently. And the text told us, like I said in verse 12, to imitate this Abraham who waited patiently. However, Here's where perhaps the modern criticism of this type of biblical interpretation comes in. Because if we leave the text there and we move on, we miss the bigger picture. We don't seek to go beyond this bare interpretation as a passage merely upholding Abraham as an example. 
we miss the better picture. Now I would suggest we miss a much more important and lovely picture. So let's zero in on not the work that Abraham performs, but rather the work that our gracious God performs in this text. So let's read again verses 13 through 15 again, but with a God-focused outlook. Now we're going to focus on what God is doing. Let's make man small and God big here. Let's pay more attention to God's workings, what we might call a God-centered exegesis. Look at verse 13 again. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waiting, waited, obtained the promise. So once again, we can see that Abraham patiently waited and obtained the promise. Now, technically... The Greek word here for patiently waited and obtained are what we call in the we, we call are in the, what we call the active voice, meaning usually uh, the subject of the verb is the one performing the action upon something. But don't mistake the taking that to mean Abraham did wait and obtained by his own soul power and ability. Sometimes the active form of a word can mean it is expressing having come to exist in a particular state. So Abraham, the text is saying, that he exists in a state of having obtained the promise, but he didn't do it all his own. Rather, what we can now easily see with our God-centered exegesis, our God-centered outlook, is that God initiated, sustained, and completed all that was done to obtain the promise. Notice that this section about Abraham serves as an illustration, as I said before, to the second half of verse 12. It illustrates what happens to someone who did wait patiently, namely, that Abraham obtained the promise. But see how verse 12 makes waiting patiently a natural outflow of faith, but imitators of those through faith and patience, inherit the promise. Abraham, nor we, would be patient without first having faith. Patience's source is faith. Do you recall Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, what that says about faith? It says, faith, it is not our own doing, but it is what? A gift of God. God is the source of what brings the promises to completion and the source of its sustaining power. Now, finally, our first sermon point is God gives us the ultimate guarantee. Notice how God initiates his promise given to his people. Then verse 17 tells us God guaranteed it with an oath. But the writer of Hebrews actually tells us just how solid this guarantee is. So listen to verse 13 again. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Then down in verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So we're all familiar with oath-taking. 
Right? This is something that is part of our lives. We have seen how courtrooms work. We take oaths there. There's a sense in which we, as a church body, have taken an oath to adhere to uh, the calls uh, on our co- church covenant. You might remember when you were young on the playground, if you really wanted your friends to believe the story that you were telling them on the playground, you would add, I swear, right? In just in case they weren't quite sure if they should trust you, adding the I swear to the end of it would mean that you're, you're really being truthful. You're definitely not lying. And if you really need something a little extra to top that off, you would add, I swear on, and you'd fill in the blank, right? But, you know, that blank had to be something important, right? It couldn't be, I swear on the celery sticks that my mom packed on the lunchbox again. That would have no weight to it, right? No one would trust you. That's not something that would hurt you to sacrifice, now, it would have to be, no, it would have to be something that you would put up for collateral, right? Something that would be hard to lose, something of great absolute importance, which is probably, probably one of the deepest I swear on the playgrounds is I swear on my mother, right? And here, we see that God does this very thing. But... He swears on the very most important thing, the highest thing that there is. He swears by himself. There is none higher. There is none of greater importance. There's no greater guarantee than for God to swear by himself. When God did not have to do this, he could have justifiably expected Abraham and us to take God at his word. After all, unlike us, he isn't the liar. He is, he is, he's uh, given us the ultimate guarantee. He puts himself up for collateral. So look at verse 15, because God swore by himself, Hebrews continues, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtain the promise. So God swearing by himself equals Abraham obtaining the promise. Yes, Abraham had faith and patiently waited, but that's not what made the promise come to fruition. Rather, God assured it by swearing by himself. Yes, Abraham is sustained by faith that produces patience until he tames the promise, but it is God's oath sworn on himself that is the basis for the promise coming to fruition. So this brings us to point number two. God gives assurance to his people. God knows us, and he knows how easily shaken our faith is. He knows it doesn't take much for us to lose confidence in something. It doesn't take much for us to not believe something that has been promised will really come to pass. After all, that is our everyday experience, is it not? We're accustomed to promises broken. Promises given by finite people very often lead to broken promises. But God is not finite. 
Furthermore, in verse 18, Hebrews tells us that it is impossible for God to lie. Perhaps we would be willing to take people at their word for something small. After all, if we end up not obtaining what was promised, it's really no biggie. It's something small. But if the promise is for something huge, something monumental, something of ultimate importance, we often require more. We want assurances. I see how far you get going to a bank for a loan and having absolutely nothing of value to offer up as collateral. A bank would quickly go out of business if they were to give, away, give money out if, if, to anyone that asked without any kind of assurances. Society has built systems around our knowledge that humanity lies. But God doesn't lie. So he doesn't need to give us anything else. His word should be taken as is. But notice then how God graciously displays his love and seeks to instill assurance in us. He condescends to our level. We just saw that he swears by himself. He desires also in verse 17 to show us more convincingly. He guarantees it and does so to encourage us in verse 18. He recognizes our frailty and gets on our level and performs things that should be reserved for finite creatures. But God, he humbles himself and places the burden of promise solely and completely on himself. One of my favorite passages in scripture is Genesis 15. And it's one of those passages, if, if you haven't studied and you're just reading through it, you kind of at a loss of what, what's going on there. But it's become one of my favorite passages because it displays this idea of how God goes out of his way to give assurance to his people. In chapter 15 of Genesis, Abraham is old and his wife is old. And it's a few decades past the time when God called him out of the house of his father to come to the land. And God has promised him that he would have a son, he would have a people, he had kings after his lines, and he would possess this land. And so God shows up in Genesis chapter 15, and he begins coming to Abraham and says, I am your shield, I am your portion. And Abraham responds, and there's a debate on how he responds, but he responds with a question. He says, in verse 8 of chapter 15, Abraham asked God, How am I to know that I shall possess it? Abraham wants assurance. And he might think God might respond, perhaps in a similar way he did to Job. Or maybe he might respond the way we respond to our children sometimes when uh, they keep asking us similar questions, right? Because I said so, that's why. Instead, notice what happens instead that God condescends and begins to make a covenant with Abraham. So in the ancient world, when you begin to make a covenant, much like we would go in, we bought a house and we're going to go sign a contract. We'd go in, you'd be people around to give you pens and you sign different contracts and it takes a little bit of time. There would be a, a, a covenant ceremony that you would perform. 
And so God begins commanding Abraham to take several animals, split them in half, and basically make a path between them. And so the expectation that every Israelite would see if they were reading this for the first time, wandering around the desert, that what was going to happen, of course, is going to be a covenant-making ceremony. And so the expectation would be that the, uh, the person that is going into the covenant is going to pass through these parts. And by passing through these parts, you're taking on an oath, a self-maledictory oath, saying that if I break the stipulations of this covenant, what's going to happen to me is I'm going to be like these animals that were cut in two. And so Abraham is most likely aware of this. He asks God, how shall I know? So God begins to make this covenant-cutting ceremony. So Abraham's expectation, every Israelite boy and girl who's going to be hearing the story for the first time wandering the desert, is going to expect what to happen, that Abraham himself, being the lesser party, would walk through those animals cleaved in two to ratify this covenant. Instead, we get an amazing surprise. Verse 13 of that chapter, the Lord says to Abram, he tells him, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. So what does he do with Abraham? He doesn't just tell Abraham, because I said so. When Abraham is needing assurances, when his faith perhaps is maybe starting to waver a little bit because the fruit of the covenant has not come to full fruition. So rather than God yell at him, get combated with him, he graciously condescends to him, and gives him what he needs. He gives him an assurance of an oath, of a covenant. He swears by himself. And we get an amazing, even more amazing surprise. Down in verse 17 of this passage, it says this, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land. So the image of the smoking fire pot is supposed to express that it is God himself who takes on the self-maledictory oath. This covenant that God is making with Abraham so that he may know for sure that the promises of God will come to fruition, he's not making it relying, reliant upon what Abraham will do. Rather, he says, it will come to pass, and if it doesn't, may I, the God of the universe who created all things, be torn apart like these animals. God humbly condescends and gives assurance to his people. So church, let's be convinced that God will fulfill all his promises to us. We should be encouraged by this, by the God who is willing to take on these obligations that he does not need to eat. The third gift from God that will grow our confidence in his great promises, number three, 
God gives us hope as an anchor for the soul. Verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now, in reading this in the ESV, uh, I admittedly, it took me a minute to figure out what the this, that pronoun this, was referring to. But another way we could possibly render this to make it a little bit clearer is you could render it as we have this hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. But what or who is this hope? That's the first question. Well, the text explains it's someone who can enter into the inner place behind the curtain. And then it makes it explicit in verse 20. Who is this hope that enters in behind the curtain? Verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Okay, so first question answered. But it may be that we have a few more questions now that pop up. What is this inner place behind the curtain? What exactly is a high priest? And what is a McKizeldeck? Now, I know many here have recently studied these things before. It wasn't too long ago, actually, that we had a sermon series on Hebrews. I recall that. And uh, our women's Wednesday night studies recently also did a study on Hebrews. So um, I know that's there, but allow me to refresh us on these things and catch those up who have not had the privilege of learning these things yet. So in an effort to not do what I do to my wife and give an over-explanation of things, I want to bring in something from the Lexham Bible Dictionary that explains to us what these things are. So what is a high priest? The Lexham Dictionary says, In the Old Testament, the primary purpose of the high priest was to serve as a representative and mediator between the people and Yahweh. The office was established with Aaron, brother of Moses, and high priests were the head priests, first at the tabernacle and then later at the temple. The high priest served several purposes that were crucial to Israelite worship. It was the high priest's responsibility to see that the covenant was enforced and to direct people to complete the duties of the temple and the law of Moses. As a representative of the nation of Israel, the high priest had tremendous responsibility to direct the hearts of the people towards God and the fulfillment of the covenant. Some of the primary responsibilities of the high priest were the regular handling of sacrifices and offerings, the blessings of the people, the annual entrance into the most holy place within the tabernacle slash temple during the Day of Atonement. Now, in the tabernacle and then the temple, as you saw from the Lexham Dictionary definition, there's this place called the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place. So what is that? The dictionary says, talks about this as well. The Holy of Holies of the tabernacle was a 10-cubit cut, 10-cubit cube separated from the rest of the sanctuary by a veil, or a curtain, which served to prohibit people from seeing and accessing God. This is reinforced by images of cherubim skillfully worked into it. The Holy of Holies contained the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. The Mercy Seat represented Yahweh's throne on earth, and His presence resided there. Two golden 
gold-plated olive wood cherubim guarded the access to God's presence as they did in Eden. The Holy of Holies was a place where heaven and earth came together. Now, no one, and absolutely no one, was allowed behind this curtain into the inner place, this Holy of Holies, the most holy of place, except for, save, the, great, or the high priest. And even then, it was only once a year. And it was only once a year after very much preparation and purification for this day. This day was called the Day of Atonement. This was one of the most important days um, in Israel because all of Israel's sins would be transferred onto two goats. The first goat had all the sins pronounced by the high priest of Israel onto it. It was transferred onto the goat, and the goat was taken by someone who wasn't of Israel away from the camp to never be seen again. Right? This is the idea of all, this, all our sins being taken away, never to be seen again, never to be remembered. Then we have the second goat that, again, the priest would pronounce and transfer the sins of Israel onto it, but this goat then would be sacrificed so that all the sins of God's people would be atoned for. So only the high priest could by God's grace, mediate this, and no other. So that's the job of the high priest. That's where the Holy of Holies is that could be entered once a year. Now, the last question, what is a McKizeldeck? Besides being the potential name for our son that will be born here in a few months, um, the, the easiest way to actually answer, I don't think that's, the easiest way to answer follows uh, in, the, in the verse directly after our passage, actually, uh, in, cha- in the chapter directly after our passage here. So look down, if you still have your Bibles open to the next chapter, chapter 7. It says this, For this Mechizeldek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and because of that means king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Salem means peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but ever but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have, a dis- dis- have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. 
for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when the Kizildek met him. So, in other words, sum all this up, putting it all together. What Hebrews is teaching us here is that Jesus is a high priest. And he's a high priest greater than the priesthood of Aaron. He is the appointed high priest of God who alone can freely, not just once a year, but freely enter into God's throne room behind the curtain. See, that's what the tabernacle represented, was the meeting place between heaven and earth. And in the Holy of Holies, a place that no one could enter save one person one day a year, represents the throne room of heaven. You could not just simply go into there. And all because God has guaranteed his promises with an oath sworn by himself, we are assured to freely enter as well. Jesus, who is God himself, gives us a hope that is so weighty that Hebrew calls it in verse 19 a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary on this passage, writes this. He says, Our hope in Christ is like an anchor for the soul. The anchor was a popular symbol in the early church. At least 66 pictures of anchors have been found in the catacombs. The Greek Stoic philosopher Epictetus wrote, One might not tie a ship to a single anchor, nor life to a single hope. Christians have but one anchor, Jesus Christ, our hope. However, he continues, this spiritual anchor is different from material anchors on ships. For one thing, he says, we are anchored upward to heaven, not downward. We are anchored not to stand still, but to move ahead. We are anchored, our anchor is sure, it cannot break, and steadfast, it cannot slip. No earthly anchor can give that kind of security. So, in Jesus, we have a hope. We have a hope that is outside of ourselves. This hope is anchored in heaven. We have continual access to God's presence, not just once a year through a fallible man, but always at every moment through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. It is anchored in Christ, our forerunner, who has gone to prepare a place for us. It is anchored in Christ, our Mechizeldekian priest, who ministers perpetually and eternally. It is sure, for it is doubly impossible for God to lie. God is so good and so gracious to spend so much time and energy to assure his weak and fragile people. It'd be enough that he gave us his word, but he goes further. He pledges himself. He gives his one and only son to bring about fulfillment of his promises. Perhaps through it all, these assurances are needed because the greatest promise of all is that we can actually be forgiven and enter behind that curtain of God's throne room without fear. And as Pastor Justin preached last week, Jesus will bring us to him to live forever.
But here in a second, we will sing a song, Christ the Shore and Steady Anchor. Before we do, I want us to hear and consider the words to this song. So let me close by way of reading to you the third verse of this song. It says this, Christ, the sure and steady anchor, through the floods of unbelief, hopeless somehow, O my soul now, lift your eyes to Calvary. This my ballast of assurance, see his love forever proved, all my hope is in the anchor, it shall never be removed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gracious willingness to come to our level and give us the things that you promise us, to give us assurances, knowing that we often need it so much, that we are frail and our faith is shaken, that you don't condemn and cast us out for sometimes having doubts, but instead you go out of your way to give us a reason to stand on your promise. Your word should be enough, but you guarantee it with oaths, and those oaths you take and swear by the highest thing possible yourself. You place yourself in harm's way if the promise aren't to go forward. And so we thank you that you are a great God that is willing to do this. Thank you for sending your son as an anchor of the soul who through him we can have the greatest assurance that what you promise for us will come to pass. We thank you again for sending us your spirit to teach us these things, to press on our heart the truth of your promises, to allow us to see that we are weighed by the anchor attached to you forever, assuredly, in your throne room. We thank you we can go behind the veil freely because of your son. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.